Hi, everyone. We're conducting an audience survey, and we'd be really grateful if you could take just a few minutes and answer a few questions. Please visit survey.prx.org happiness to take the survey today. That's survey.prx.org happiness. Thank you. The Science of Happiness is brought to you by Progressive, one of the country's leading providers of auto insurance. With Progressive's Name Your Price tool, you say what kind of coverage you're looking for and how much you want to pay, and Progressive will help you find options that fit within your budget. Use the Name Your Price tool and start an online quote today at Progressive.com. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Did you make a New Year's resolution this year? My New Year's resolution is to try super duper hard to not take anybody close to me for granted. My New Year's resolution is to find a better tasting wine. My New Year's resolution is to see more art. All the kinds. <laughs> my resolution is dive more, work less, but my work is diving, so I don't know what to do now. My New Year's resolution is to really be more present with my kids after I get home from work. My resolution is to see the science of happiness lead to a more just and kind world. Our guest today also made a resolution to create more quality time for herself and her friends in the midst of a very busy life. Lisa Genova is a neuroscientist, a mother of three, and a New York Times bestselling author of multiple novels, including Still Alice. Those novels explore how the mind works, especially in complicated conditions such as Alzheimer's. Thanks to those novels, she now advocates on behalf of people with Alzheimer's. When we asked Lisa to do a science-based practice to boost kindness and joy in her own life, she chose one to help her slow down and reconnect. And she's here today to tell us how it went. Lisa, thanks for joining us on The Science of Happiness. Thank you, Decker. It's so much fun. I wanted to ask you, you started in neuroscience yeah. at Harvard. What were you studying? I was actually studying the molecular neurobiology of addiction. Wow. Then you turned to writing fiction. I wasn't flirting with being a writer whatsoever. I was a total science geek. Like, math and science had always been my thing. Neuroscience, I was very deep into it and loved it. My grandmother had Alzheimer's mm. right about the time that I was finishing up my graduate work. And I was down at NIH. She didn't know who any of us were anymore. And, I mean, this really wise, lovely woman who had, you know, really built a beautiful life and an amazing family didn't recognize any of it or know any of it. So it's just such a horrible price to pay for living into old age, yeah. to become disconnected from your entire life's work and what you've lived for. Yeah. So I'm watching all this happen, and I feel so bad for her, and I feel so bad for all of us. We're just heartbroken, yeah. and yet I didn't know how to feel with her. Yeah. So I had sympathy but not empathy, and so right. I felt very disconnected and frustrated and unnerved by it all. And so recognizing it was empathy that I was missing and that yeah. I was having a hard time with, that was the connection to fiction. I'm like, oh, well, yeah. fiction is a place where you can explore empathy and walk in someone else's shoes. And at the time, there wasn't a fictional account at least a good one, about someone with Alzheimer's told from the perspective of the person with it. Because yeah. I, it's always the caregiver's story. Yeah. And that story is important for sure. But what about the voice of the person who's becoming silenced? Yeah. Well, I know many people are grateful for the work you're doing, teaching us the science of the mind through fiction. I wanted to ask you about the practice that you chose for our show. It's called Creating and Recalling Positive Events. And it's really a call to actively seek out happiness by doing fun, meaningful things. Can you describe the steps of this practice? 
Yeah. So the first step of this practice says you need to choose an activity that you enjoy doing alone and then set aside some time during the day to actually do it. The second step of the practice asks you to set aside some time to do something you enjoy with someone else. The third step asks you to choose an activity that you consider personally important and meaningful. So like helping someone or volunteering at a charity, contributing to something in the community and the world at large. The last step really sort of crystallizes it and locks it in so that it doesn't float away on you. So the fourth and final step of this practice says that at the end of the day, you record what happened both during and after these three activities. Why did you choose this practice? It takes the better part of a day to do all four of the steps. And for most of us, that's quite a commitment. So I actually had a lot of resistance to choosing this one. So I really was like, oh, can I just do something that's 10 minutes and move along? But I chose this in part because I am so busy and I have, you know, I've got three kids and this career and I'm trying to finish a book and it's just so busy, busy, busy. And I thought, you know, maybe this is something that I need. Uh Yeah. So the first step is to choose something that you really enjoy doing, but don't normally set aside the time for it. What did you do? So for me, I chose reading fiction. Oddly enough, I'm a fiction writer, and I (laughs) I tend to save reading fiction to bedtime. So during the day, I'm reading, you know, scientific papers and staying up on Alzheimer's research and, you know, reading nonfiction. But at night, that's when I save, you know, reading the stories that I really want to read. But I'm exhausted, and I make it like a couple of pages, and I'm asleep. Yeah. So it doesn't happen. So I'm like, okay, so on this day, I'm going to spend a couple of hours. It was in the morning. I had a tea (laughs) on my living room couch (laughs) overlooking Boston, and I was like, I'm going to read fiction. I'm going to read a novel. So I spent a couple hours reading, and it felt like a vacation. (laughs) I amazingly did not feel guilty, I think, because I had made the decision to do this practice, I was doing what I was supposed to do because I had consciously decided to make room for it. Uh It felt delicious. It felt like I just felt happy. I really did. I felt like, why do I not do this more? But I don't do this normally because I have so much to do and I I have a constant to-do list and I never get to the end of it. I don't allow myself a two-hour time period. But interestingly, it also made me think of how much time I dumped down the drain on social media or emails or I don't even know. But I definitely, I lose a lot of hours to monkeying around on my cell phone. Tell me about it. And it's interesting how we schedule ourselves like crazy, but we don't set aside time for, you know, reading or just exploring. Yeah. So the second part of the practice is where you do something with someone else. And we know from if there's ever... Now a truism in the science of happiness literature is like get together with people you care about. It just is robust. So what would you do? Yeah, and so I have a friend in the city, and we text a lot. You know, I spend most of my time on Cape Cod, and she's in Boston. I'm in Boston, you know, not as often. But we text a lot, and that's kind of our our friendship. (laughs) It relies on these messages back and forth, which is lovely, but I don't get in front of her enough. And so I asked her if she could take some time out and maybe go for a walk with me. And we walked for a couple of hours. And what was great about that is it was also not only was it in person, but it was just the two of us. Because I found that when we do get together, we try to get efficient about it all, right? Like, well, let's get together with all the other people I don't normally get to see. And so we go out as a group. And it's her husband and my boyfriend and a girlfriend. And there's a bunch of people. And it doesn't allow for that deep dive intimate, like, okay, like, tell me everything. What's going on? (laughs) So so we chatted for two hours while walking. It was, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, the Uh wonderful, the dreams, the fears, all of it. 
And then for the third step, you're supposed to do something for others. What did you do then? So the third, interestingly, I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be. I'm like, well, I spend a lot <laughs> of my days contributing to a greater cause. So the, the third step is to do something helpful or contribute to someone or something in the world. As if you don't do enough already. Thank but... you. But yeah, I do spend my days. I get, you know, yeah. a lot of people come at me, can you help with this? And my mother is experiencing Alzheimer's. You know, what do I do? And yeah. I spend a lot of time trying to be a resource for folks. And so I thought, well, I could get a little lazy on this one and just, you know, mail it in in, in terms of what I already normally do. But interestingly, I love like when you're calling something into your life, you're paying attention to the possibility of it. You're sort of calling out to the universe, inviting this experience in. Like if you're walking to work and didn't pay attention to anything about the cars and someone said, how many red cars did you see on the way to work? Uh I don't know. But if you paid (laughs) attention looking for red cars, it's like, well, I saw 11. Yeah. So I'm sort of thinking about this idea of like, well, what could I do that's a contribution? And my friend Sarah Swain texts me out of the blue and says, hey, I'm in Boston at the youth climate rally and I think sent me a picture and I said, I'm in Boston. I'm going to meet you. And she's like, fantastic. So <laughs> so that became what I did that day for a contribution, which was so phenomenal. And again, if I hadn't had this yeah. exercise, if I hadn't consciously made the decision to do this practice, if she had texted me, I would have been like, oh, that's great, but I'm too busy. I have all these you know, responsibilities. I need to get my book written and I don't have enough time. Yeah. I have this sort of scarcity mentality with respect to time. Exactly. But instead, because I was looking for it, it was like, oh, this just landed in my lap. How perfect. Yes, I will meet you down at the State House. Yeah. So it felt good to be part of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the really striking things in this part of the science of happiness is those experiences have these kind of enduring effects where you really just try something for an intensive period. Did that happen to you? Like you felt reverberations? Oh, absolutely. In terms of the rally, I felt, you know, part of something bigger than me. I felt connected to all of those strangers. They weren't strangers. They were, you know, community. They were me. They they weren't other. You know, we were together in this and that felt great. And then in terms of like past that day, I did feel more connected and happier, and I was definitely in awe at the rally. I felt closer to that friend, Sarah, as well, because we experienced it together. I think life is often a collection of you know shared experiences. So normally that day for me would have been spent alone writing. And so instead, this day was about connection and love and community. And it made me appreciate that I... If I choose to, I do have time in the day to invite those things in that don't deplete me, that they actually nourish. So one of the really interesting things about this practice is it kind of puts you in different contexts, right? You're by yourself or you're with friends, doing service, writing. Did kind of the tone or quality of the feeling you had differ for the different parts of the practice? Yeah, it did a bit. So for when I was just reading alone... That really did feel, that happiness felt like it was a gift for me. It was a treat. It was this, (laughs) yeah, it was this yummy thing that was really just for me. And it, again, I didn't feel guilty or selfish about it because I was doing it on purpose. Nice. The other activities, the happiness was more about being connected to other people. Yeah. It was the focus. I felt great, but the focus didn't feel like it was on me. I was right. listening to Sarah. We were connecting. We were laughing. We were, you know, really trying to understand life together. And it was about the two of us. So the happiness felt like in the connection, in the space between the two of us. Yeah. And then the happiness that was involved in the march, 
again, it, that felt more about yeah. that felt massive. But again, it didn't. It wasn't about me, and it didn't yeah. really. It, it didn't even necessarily reside in me. It was all of that connection between those thousands of people. And it was more awe yeah. than happiness, Collective really. Collective effervescence or whatever totally. you would call it. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So the final part of this practice is to write about it? Yes. What was that like for you? It was lovely. Creating the space to reflect rather than just barrel ahead yeah. really helped me understand the impact of what I experienced that day. And... It gave me the chance to appreciate how wonderful it was for me and how wonderful it was to be, again, a part of other people's days and be a positive impact to them and them to me. And it, I think journaling is lovely like yeah. that. It gave me a chance to really reflect on what did all of that mean to me? What do I want to carry forward into the next day and beyond with what happened? Yeah. And I didn't lose it. So it was nice to do that. So, Lisa, you're in the thick of raising kids. You have a demanding career. You're flying all over. Do you think you really like to give yourself the time to read a book for fun in the morning or just go out on a walk with a friend, just really to create more of these positive experiences in your daily life? That's such a great question because I've thought about that. Like, okay, this was great, <laughs> but is this just a one-off and I'm never going to incorporate this into my life? And then I kind of do this, but I wait, right? So, yeah. like, I will yeah. give myself days like this, but it's like, well, I can't do it until I'm done with this book. And, well, a book isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. So I might go, you know, it might take me a year to write the thing. So what? I'm not going to allow myself an opportunity to experience this kind of a right. day again, you know, a year from now. So how do I create some space for this? And it's, I think a lot of us, I certainly spend too much time monkeying around on social media. Yeah. It's kind of my default go-to, like, oh, I'll just check this. You know, next thing you know, I'm looking around and I'm <laughs> buying something. Or I don't even know. So it's about getting mindful of like, okay, Elise, like, let's plan. I got to plan it. So I've got to put it on my calendar that I'm going to do this or yeah. set an intention to do it because yep. otherwise the days will just slip by. And then to not feel guilty or feel like my work is going to suffer because I'm not spending all my available hours on on it because I know that adding something like this into my day, A, I do have the room if I consciously create it, and B, that it fills me up in a way that then when I go to my work, when I go to my kids, I am a more alive, better version of me. Yeah. And that's what that counts. That counts. Yeah. That's yeah, there's more value to that than me dragging my depleted self to my my book or my kids. Yeah. I was just talking to somebody who's done a lot of work in this area, you know, just thinking about what are the benefits of things you talked about, like an awe experience at a collective gathering or a deep social connection experience where you walk with somebody. And she put it really nicely, which is very often it helps us make the micro decisions more effectively in life, right, for the days or weeks after that, oh, gosh, given this experience, here's how I can listen to my child or here's I should spend a little less time on social media. So there are these nice benefits for decision making. Yeah. Well, Lisa Genova, I wanted to thank you for your writing, your insights into the complexities of the human mind. And I want to thank you for being on The Science of Happiness today. Thank you, Decker. You bet. Have you ever wondered whether seeking happiness can backfire? We'll find out more next. Hiring the right team for your business can be a long and arduous process. With Indeed, there are no long-term contracts, you can pause your account at any time, and you only pay for what you need. 
Indeed.com is the hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with Indeed Instant Match. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in their database to help show you great candidates instantly. Want your quality shortlist fast? You need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com happiness. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com happiness. Indeed.com happiness. Offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. We know from science that giving to others, especially those in need, can make us happier as a community. Unbound is an international nonprofit that partners with families living in extreme poverty, empowering them to become self-sufficient and fulfill their desired potential. When you sponsor a child, young adult, or elder through Unbound, you invest in personalized benefits that support goals chosen by the sponsored individual and their family. Unbound sends more than $100 million each year to support families in under-resourced countries. You can make a real and direct impact, offering hope in the life of someone when they need it most. Partner with a new friend today at unbound.org happiness. Before the break, we pose this question. Does seeking out happiness make you happier, or does it backfire and lead to less happiness? I think that the answer to that is it depends. Lana Catalina is an assistant professor of psychology at Scripps College. There are self-defeating ways of pursuing or relating to happiness, and there are fruitful ways of pursuing happiness. Lana wanted to see if prioritizing positivity would be a fruitful approach. Prioritizing positivity, it's an approach towards life that involves people carving out time in their daily routine to do things that they genuinely love to do. She conducted a survey where over 200 people answered how true or false a series of statements were in their own lives. So example items are what I decide to do with my time outside of work is influenced by how much I might experience positive emotions. Another example item is I structure my day to maximize my happiness. They then assessed to what extent those people were experiencing a variety of depressive symptoms, like problems sleeping or disturbances in their appetite. We found that people who scored higher on the prioritizing positivity measure also were scoring higher on their general tendency to feel positive emotions. They were more satisfied with their lives. They exhibited fewer depressive symptoms and fewer negative emotions. You know, they're structuring their daily life so that it affords them this steady diet of positive emotions. And so I think that's why people who prioritize positivity are happier and less depressed, because you know the structure of their daily lives sort of elicits more positive emotions for them. Prioritizing positivity is different than seeking out joy at all times. That actually predicts overall lower well-being. When people you know, really try to feel the greatest amount of happiness, as possible from moment to moment while doing something pleasant, this actually appears to backfire. So instead of seeking out joy in each moment, Lana believes that we should reflect upon the different things that make us happy and then tweak our daily routines accordingly. The key then is to create situations that naturally bring more happiness into our lives. Mm. 
If you'd like to try the Creating and Recalling Positive Events practice, visit our Greater Good in Action website at ggia.berkeley.edu. Share with us how it went for you by emailing greater at berkeley.edu or using the hashtag happinesspod. I'm Dacker Keltner. Thanks for joining me on the Science of Happiness. Our podcast is a co-production of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and PRX. Our producer is Shuka Kalantari, production assistants from Jenny Cataldo and Ben Manila of BMP Audio. Our associate producer is Annie Berman. Our executive producer is Jane Park. Our editor-in-chief is Jason Marsh. Special thanks goes to UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism.